Hey guys, I sent a Bitcoin transaction on Tuesday. It's now Thursday and it's still unconfirmed. And I paid the highest fee possible with my software that I used to send it. Yeah, so Bitcoin is once again at all-time highs and doesn't really show any signs of stopping. Of course, that's always what it looks like until the very last minute, in which case it's too late. It's having some very interesting effects on the network and on kind of the community in general. So I think that it is a good time to chat about that. So how much did you pay in fee yesterday? It was 0.001 per kilobyte. So I guess it's one millibit per kilobyte, which is huge. That's a, that's a huge fee. I mean, I remember when 10 times less than that was a huge fee. The, the transaction that I paid to get it to clear in about 10, 20 minutes was a 40 cent transaction fee. So, okay, that's funny that you said that, Jonathan, because I did pay 40 cents exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was how much I paid. Well, I did a transaction yesterday and the normal fee on it was a little bit under a dollar. It was about 90 cents. And that was a normal transaction that, according to Copay, was supposed to solve itself in about 30 minutes. And then there was the, the more expensive one to get you in 20 minutes, and that was about another 30 or 40% more expensive. So the bottom line just is that I think the lowest price we've now heard is uh, 40 cents. Actually, the other transaction I got was 40 cents per transaction as well. But the variable that we're not looking at is the second one, which is Satoshi's per byte in the transaction. Because while the first transaction that I sent yesterday was 40 cents and the second transaction that I received both sent a 40 cent transaction fee, the first one was 120 Satoshis a byte and the second one was uh, 210 Satoshis a byte. So while at a consumer level, we perceive the same transaction fee for the same objective action, at a network level, they perceived one transaction as being twice amount, the amount of work versus the other one. Mm. Uh, this is one of those fun things about Bitcoin. Okay, so let's actually just get into the weeds for a little bit here. Most of our uh, longtime listeners are going to know this, but if you don't know, the way that Bitcoin actually tells how much you need to spend on a transaction has less to do with the amount of value that you're sending and more to do with the number of chunks of Bitcoin that you're combining together in order to send whatever the amount is that you're sending. So the story I always tell here is uh, back in the days when we were powered entirely by tips, we had a wallet that had literally, you know, uh, hundreds and eventually thousands of tips come into it in very small amounts. And so what I discovered through that experiment was that whenever I would go to actually spend any of the funds out of the tip account, uh, what would happen is that the fees would be absolutely enormous by comparison. And I eventually had to stop using Armory Wallet, which was my tool of choice at the time, because it simply wouldn't process the transactions because I had so many tiny, tiny little pieces of Bitcoin. So the most kind of expensive way from a transaction fee point of view to use Bitcoin is to do what I did and to have one account where you have lots and lots and lots of little transactions coming in. And we used to even generate a different address on a per show basis. And that kind of exacerbates the problem even more. While the best way to use it from a cost perspective is to have one chunk of, you know, 100 Bitcoin, right? And then you can send any amount and it's two outputs. It's one, one output that goes, sends the money that you're sending to whomever and one output that gives you the rest of the Bitcoin in that chunk as change, which you can then use to spend. So it's, it's really strange how the more concentrated your Bitcoin is into these little chunks of Bitcoin that you receive over time, the cheaper it is to spend those to other people. And 
conversely, kind of the more small transactions you receive, the more expensive it is to then spend whatever that value is forward. So it didn't used to matter quite so much. But now with the price of Bitcoin, we see that it's it's mattering increasingly. Right. And you're looking basically at Bitcoin as it's architected being a currency or a settlement network <laughs> when when even in the first world we're sort of hesitant to spend money because of how exorbitant the transaction fees are that we need to wait to batch transactions at the end of the day and then send them as a chunk <laughs> that that gets more to looking at bitcoin like a settlement system not a, a payment protocol and as we sort of look back at how bitcoin was initially going to change the world of remittance and the the bottom billion and i remember i think it was at the first bitcoin conference the stated objective was to be able to use bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee in calcutta i think as bitcoin scaled we realized just how far we are from that outcome and getting further all the time has it ever really been possible to do that i think there's always been barriers to that vision and now we're getting even further away from it. It used to be that, okay, well, you had internet access issues and issues with apps that would allow people to use Bitcoin and issues with adoption with people knowing about Bitcoin and issues with merchant adoption where merchants didn't take Bitcoin. All those issues were there and are still there. But now on top of it, we have the fee issue and the capacity of the network. And so we're just getting further and further away from that. So is it time to question that idea that Bitcoin was ever for that purpose of being able to buy a cup of coffee in Calcutta? Was that really like, what, is there anything to that? Or should we just abandon that idea? Basically, is that just something that people said to make you feel good about Bitcoin? Because it's a good catchphrase, right? Like, oh, Bitcoin is for the unbanked and for all those people in the world who don't have a bank account and a credit card and they can't easily get, it makes you feel good. It's like microloans, right? But we all know that microloans have problems, right? There's, yes, they can improve people's lives, but they also have sort of, you know, some issues with them as well. So with Bitcoin, I don't, I don't know if it was ever really for that. I think that was something that people said because it sounded good and it was a good sound bite, but I don't know that that many people were ever really so excited about that or if it was just a few idealists kind of. Yeah, I, I think that comes down to just the self-fulfilling prophecy of innovators as in the adoption curve of groups. You have innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. And by definition, innovators see things not as they are, but how they ultimately wish it to be. And in the early days of Bitcoin, we were just flooded with innovators who wanted to see the potential, not necessarily the actual. And as we're starting to become more mainstream and getting more practical use of an opinion on Bitcoin, people are just being uh, significantly more practical on evaluating it on the basis of what it can do now. And I do think that when it comes to scaling, and it's 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 sort of the, the, the rule of any conversation on the internet eventually gets to Hitler, any conversation in Bitcoin eventually gets to scaling. You know, it's just hopefully that can be resolved. One of my favorite examples when it comes to visions for the internet is two companies doing one thing that I thought was very funny. In 1999, Enron and Blockbuster had a joint venture to experiment with streaming video over the internet. <laughs> And wrong company, wrong company, right idea, wrong time. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing in Bitcoin is a lot of that. It's that, you know, it, it might be the wrong players, it might be the wrong company, but I think it's the right idea, it's just the wrong time. And as Bitcoin starts to mature, hopefully that idea, that vision will come again soon. So you think it's going to come back into fashion that someday 
we will circle back around to that idea of Bitcoin being able to be used for microtransactions. Yeah, I, I, I don't even necessarily think it will start with the intention of helping the poor. Like most innovations, it, it starts where the money's at and then it trickles down. But I think that there's such an insanely huge market for micro-tipping and microfinance on the internet when it comes to kilobyte-based transactions or, or just these fractions of a, of a cent that represents such a huge market that someone's going to crack that nut. And in cracking that, we'll solve the remittance problem or the microtransaction problem for the bottom billion or the bottom two billion. I think a big element of this has to do with kind of the story of Bitcoin and how that's evolved over time. And in the beginning, as you guys mentioned, you know, there's a lot of idealists kind of telling the story. And this was the thing that was kind of our reason for being in it was that it allowed for these things that were impossible. And so if you didn't have that story, think about what we would have been talking about. We would have been talking basically about how this is eventually going to be better than banking, but you know, fundamentally, it has kind of all of these hurdles getting from here to there. So for a narrative, that was a much better story than kind of the alternatives. And over time, as the network has sort of grown up, it's gone away because it turned out it was a lot harder to solve than a lot of people thought. And there were a lot more problems than just something that requires Bitcoin. But perhaps it's not necessarily about Bitcoin. Perhaps that story was always about cryptocurrency or maybe not even cryptocurrency at all, but just like it doesn't matter what's going on under the hood. It just matters that you accomplish the goal. And if we take it from that metric, then it's not going to be Bitcoin itself. But it seems like the technologies you may be talking about are these secondary layers, be it Lightning Network or something else. Well, I also think maybe all the innovators were right. And because they're right, they were wrong about a second part, which is I think everyone remembers Bitcoin initially being explained as digital gold. It's like digital gold. It's like digital gold. Maybe they were absolutely correct in the explanation and conceptualizing Bitcoin as digital gold. But because they were all philosophically Austrian people, they uh, Austrian economics uh, based people, they thought digital gold meant digital money. But when you get money, there's no money that's gold backed. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they kept saying, it's digital gold, it's digital gold. And maybe Bitcoin is digital gold, which is why it won't be digital currency. <laughs> hmm. I mean, if you look at it objectively, outside of the fact that gold continues to just languish around the same area it's been for the last seven, eight, nine years. Yeah, it's, and, and we've, we've surpassed gold parity with uh, one Bitcoin being worth more than an ounce of gold. So it is fun to look at your Bitcoin and say, each one of these is an ounce of gold. <laughs> That is an interesting perspective I hadn't yet taken on, and I haven't <laughs> made that connection yet. It always takes so long to come to grips with the kind of new normal, if indeed it is that, and so hard to tell what is kind of a new normal. So the getting back to the Calcutta coffee example, let's assume that transactions get pushed down to 10 cents each. That's still too expensive. Transactions pushed down to one cent each. That's still basically too expensive. So I mean, like, is this something that can be done on a blockchain or is this like something that perhaps it's a, it's a sort of function that can be used to bootstrap like new chains that don't have a lot of activity. And so you just kind of shove all of the low value economic activity onto it. And eventually you get the same type of thing that happens with Bitcoin if it's successful, right? The utility causes demand to push the price up and then you essentially have to migrate the cheap stuff to another chain. There are lots of different ways that you could solve this. And it seems like people want to solve this. So it just seems perhaps like it's no longer a Bitcoin thing. It's a cryptocurrency thing. Chains only work if there's a network effect. And so it's a challenge because the network effect has to be big enough to sustain the chain and, and secure it. 
but also not big enough so that it's so valuable to have transactions on that chain that it, the fees get too expensive or and it doesn't have enough room or whatever. Unless the chain has like, you know, unlimited size. And I feel like it's very complicated. There's going to be an equilibrium that's reached. <laughs> Whenever things get too complicated, I start thinking, oh, well, it's kind of too complicated for me to comprehend. The market will take care of it. You know, it'll reach a natural equilibrium. So I'm not too worried about it. But I don't know. Is that happening with Bitcoin transactions? It seems to be not really yet because there's maybe we're at a little bit of a technological bottleneck with things like lightning networks and also upgrades to the Bitcoin protocol. And maybe that stuff will come eventually, but it, it feels like we're bottlenecked a little bit right now. Yeah, the bottleneck. I mean, there's no question about that. The question is kind of what do we do about it and does it matter? So let's actually take a step back for a second. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Uh, we're having a somewhat informal conversation here. I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And then we have a special guest host, uh, Jonathan Mohan, who's been on the show a number of times before. Hello, hello. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Of course. I have been reserving judgment on Factum for a long time. And Jonathan, I know that you've done some work for them and uh, have a bit of an inside perspective on it. So I can just tell you right now that until I actually saw their recent API documentation that I don't know if it's been released yet, but they're getting ready to release a kind of enhanced API. I did not actually understand how Factum worked and I did not actually understand why it was something that mattered to me. And now that I do understand it, I'm beginning to see the use case there, especially in this type of scaling environments. So Adam, you explain that to me. I don't understand Factum very well. Okay, yeah, you explain it to me in your own words. I want to hear your explanation. <laughs> so proof of existence is the idea of putting something, putting a fingerprint of something into the blockchain, which makes it tamper evident and also timestamps so you can see what came first. What you can do with Factum is instead of putting each individual transaction into the blockchain, instead what you do is you create the confusingly named chains for anything that you actually want to track. And so like if I'm a player in a game, then I could have a chain that is just my personal chain. And whenever I do something in that game, then the game updates Factum via this API uh, with all of my actions. Factum adds it to kind of the list of stuff. And then I believe 170 times per day, so 170 blocks, they put a fingerprint in that represents their entire secondary layer. So it's not just the stuff that I've put in, but it's the stuff that Factum has put in for uh, their own use and for all of their other clients as well. Uh, and so what that means is that you get all of the benefits or at least many of the benefits of the security of the Bitcoin blockchain just in a little bit less granular way. So instead of it being every transaction, maybe you're only uh, you're, you're pushing 170 times a day, but each checkpoint kind of happens at that point. So what it means is that if you have a thousand transactions that occur just as you would with the Lightning Network, then they can all settle during that one, you know, one of those 170 checkpoints. And so it means that if you use it in the right way with the right kinds of systems built on top of it, um, you can achieve scaling on Bitcoin that doesn't use tokens in the same way we've been talking about. It doesn't use Bitcoin in the same way we've been talking about it. It validates to Bitcoin and then uses a secondary layer, just like Lightning or something else like that. So that's the kind of cool part. The, the particularly cool part about Factum for me is that it's it's actually very easy to do this. And that that's the difficult part most of the time is like at Tokenly, we spend a lot of time building fairly complex systems because nobody else has built it. And Factum, thank God, has actually been working on this for long enough that it seems like they have a very functional, stable product that we're kind of looking forward to getting into um, because it solves our problem without without us having to do it. And so what about when you want to go back and verify 
what's written in the checkpoints on Factum. Do you have to have a special key or something to see it? Can you see everybody's transactions transparently or everybody's information? Yeah, you can see everybody's transactions transparently, including the kind of message that goes along with it. But that just basically means that it's public unless you design your system in such a way that the thing you're embedding into Factum and thus Bitcoin is not like uh, identifying, right? So if you just put in like a, essentially a serial number, then that might track back to something on your system and it still gives you the ability to have this private information that's verified through a public blockchain. But if you don't want to do that and you just want to put everything onto the blockchain for it to be seen, then Factum essentially maintains their own blockchain. It's not really a blockchain. It's more like a ledger that then is being verified and, and secured to the Bitcoin blockchain. Right. So it's not actually its own blockchain, but it performs the same function at an absolute fraction of the cost. And so one of the reasons why this is really appealing is because rather than having to look at it from, okay, we have to make a transaction on the Bitcoin network per thing that we do. And that costs, you know, between 20 and 20 cents and a dollar. Instead, with Factum, you're looking at uh, one tenth of one penny per one kilobyte of data that you're adding to the system. So it's just exponentially cheaper and it's a flat fee too that won't change as bitcoin goes up in price so that's really valuable so how does it connect back to the microtransactions issue do you think that this is like a solution basically something like actum is an example of how smaller transactions could be worked into the bitcoin ecosystem Right. There's no reason why you couldn't take something like change tip from back in the day, which was an entirely off chain centralized tipping system that was centralized for convenience, for low fees, for the microtransaction thing. You could do exactly the same thing, but secure every, you know, 170 times per day into the Factum blockchain. It would cost you, what would that be, like 17 cents per day to do that if you did it right, right? If you were um, not putting every single thing that happens into it, but rather just kind of settling to it, then you wind up with a really, really inexpensive system that doesn't scale linearly anymore. And that's the thing that's really been missing, in my opinion, from Bitcoin with all of these things is that any system that you look at designing, you have to assume that as users increase in your system, your costs will go up linearly because they're using more transactions. And just, I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons why that is a terrible idea, right? In practice, nobody has cryptocurrency and there are just all these other problems that kind of come out of that. But that's that's sort of the, the holy grail that I'm really looking for these days is how can we get more use regardless of where it is on the blockchain? How can we just get more throughput so that more people can use it and we can have less of these problems that are related to, oh, well, do you have Bitcoin? Because again, if you're doing a system like this, you don't even necessarily need Bitcoin in order to do these transactions because the system that you're using is just using it essentially on the back end. You could do this with anything. Once you understand it, right, in a slightly less abstract concept than I think it's been presented in so far, it's actually an incredibly powerful idea that based on the way that they've deployed it so far, seems like it it makes a lot of sense in commercial applications. Like there are a lot of projects out there that are like run our daemon, right? Run our, our, you know, software daemon and, you know, we're updating it now. It's in progress. Storage did the same thing. They basically provide an API so that rather than having to run all of their daemons and software and stuff like that and deal with all the complexity entailed, instead, you just deal directly with their company. They provide you with an API and essentially help you use the service in a way that's a lot easier. It's not quite as decentralized but as a company, you don't really necessarily care about that upfront anyways. And it, it sort of brings about another question, which is Factum as a use has its own blockchain, but ultimately uses Bitcoin as a settlement network for Bitcoin security and immutability. And as we're looking towards scaling solutions, <laughs> maybe the answer for remittances 
is that that's not something that will be done in Bitcoin. Maybe we need some sort of two-way pegged altcoin that sits a layer on top of Bitcoin, like Factum does, and just settles on Bitcoin. And I mean, that's basically the idea of sidechains, but Factum is able to achieve what they did as effectively a sidechain without needing any of the core devs or the miners to agree with what they're doing. They just built their own layer and started using it. Maybe the way to resolve Bitcoin as an actual currency for the the bottom uh, two or three billion or hell, even Stephanie as, uh, and I, as we look at paying 40 cents every time we want to send and receive do- uh, money and then yes. wait a week, <laughs> uh, which, sound, which incidentally sounds a lot like PayPal. Or the poor orphan children of Bitcoin, Jonathan. <laughs> or, or, or the mail, right? I mean, just like put a check right. in the mail. It's not 40 any different. 40 cents for a stamp. Yeah. Right. I, I joke at my meetups that Bitcoin can scale quite easily, and it's a known solution. All we need are eight nodes and a transaction block time of 72 hours, <laughs> and we'll call it the G8 and T3. Um, you basically just reinvented a- ACH. <laughs> but that, that's the problem, is how to scale without a known solution, is how to scale while maintaining the notions of decentralization. But maybe these Layer 2 systems' inherent conceit is they're trying to wait for Bitcoin itself to be the thing that allows them to work within their framework rather than building a secondary layer as a de facto sidechain, but without requiring Bitcoin itself to change like Factum has. So the layer two argument, I think, I've pretty much come around on it. (laughs) You know, like I was always in favor of it as a means of scaling kind of amongst other ones. But I mean, it just seems like this delay has kind of forced the issue in a way that I didn't really anticipate, but that has pretty aggressively changed my mind. I no longer want to wait for scaling. That's really what what's come down to. It's not that I think that scaling with off-chain layers is a better way. I think that it does offer some meaningful advantages, but the thing that it really lets me do, and that I think that it lets a lot of people do, is just not wait for Bitcoin itself to decide because it's not necessary. So I think that's kind of the weakness with all of these other projects. And we've seen it with Lightning Network. We've seen it with Segregated Witness. There's a whole list of things that are like, once you have consensus, well, that'll be great. But getting consensus is really hard and there's no actual time frame on that. So if you can figure out ways to go around it and solve the problem, then that does seem like it's, I mean, it seems like it's something that'll actually happen as opposed to what's happening now where there's just like, you have no idea if or when it's going to happen. The, the problem with scaling in Bitcoin is that Bitcoin was architected with, and I, and I need to write this down, I suppose, but like four or five different signals um, that the network could use to come to consensus. And the problem is that those four signals are being used by like six or seven different types of parties. And the, the ultimate problem is that you can't use these four signals for these seven different parties. And because of that, Bitcoin functionally as a method for consensus has had this halting problem for the past two years, which is called not being able to institute a hard fork. We have the price, we have the block reward, we have the difficulty, and we have the nodes in, in terms of what code the nodes are running. And those are sort of like four strong ways to look at consensus in the network. We have so many different interests at play. And if that those are the only four or five ways that they have to understand market signals, then they're able to instill value in other ways that can't be reflected directly in the platform itself. So recently, it's come to light a couple of potential ways that miners are making money by ensuring that the hard fork doesn't happen, that SegWit doesn't happen, that specific updates to Bitcoin would remove specific uh, vulnerabilities or opportunities that make them exorbitant profits. And because the network doesn't have a way to signal that in it, and just the, the, the sort of four that we described, 
um, the network has halted because uh, someone's had a meta layer of value that isn't being directly attributed in Bitcoin's Nash equilibriums in the four frameworks that it already set up for consensus. And that's sort of a larger discussion on uh, user-activated soft forks, which is a topic that I know very little about, (laughs) (laughs) but would be just another strong way to put at the protocol level uh, a consensus framework that people could signal to, which is sorely lacking. Bitcoin has halted not because there's a real hard problem that people can't solve. Bitcoin has halted because the Nash equilibrium of incentive frameworks that Bitcoin has is not fully encompassing every incentive framework that Bitcoin has. And because of that, they're creating ARBs for halting that wouldn't exist if it were more robust in how it was able to signal consensus. And ultimately, what it comes down to is Bitcoin will never be a remittance network for a price of coffee in Calcutta with a transaction fee corresponding to that price until there isn't an incentive framework for that to be the case. Because right now, if you look at the four or five different incentive frameworks that the protocol has, none of them maximize for the lowering of the price per the Satoshi price per kilobyte of a transaction. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about incentives for a second. It's interesting because the game that we're playing with Bitcoin basically has no rules except those that are codified into the protocol itself. We have kind of norms in the space that have changed over time. And early on, the norms were really centered around kind of libertarian ideals. And more recently, they've been centered around sort of business concerns. And now, now, right now, they're centered around kind of the two camps of you know, how do you grow this thing without killing it? And both sides have different answers and both sides basically believe that the other guy's approach is going to kill it. So the other side of this is that for a very long time, Bitcoin was the cryptocurrency market itself. And in the last couple of months, I believe just today, the uh, percentage of market cap, essentially that Bitcoin makes up relative to all of the other altcoins out there, dip below 60%. Um, And that is a pretty substantial departure from where we were before. So to me, overall, that seems like it's kind of a healthy move. But at the same time, it uh, you know, for a long time, I've said that we're in a in a Bitcoin bubble that isn't about the price of Bitcoin. It's about the kind of only one characteristic of Bitcoin. And that at some point, that was going to be something that people would would realize, oh, actually, it's not just about Bitcoin. It's about cryptocurrency in general. Looking at the markets, looking at what Bitcoin's doing, you know, the Bitcoin price continues to go up, but it does seem like increasingly it's not about Bitcoin. So circling back around to the the Bitcoin for the unbanked, that's kind of what I was saying is that like right now, Ethereum is the second most popular, second most valuable cryptocurrency out there. But if you try and make a transaction with it, it's really cheap because they haven't actually hit any of their meaningful scaling problems yet. So if you wanted to take uh, Ethereum and make the argument and you know create a company that tries to bank the unbanked there you'd have about the same challenge as you would with Bitcoin, except the cost isn't there. You know, if Ethereum it becomes successful, then obviously, and they don't solve scaling in the way that they hope that they solve scaling, uh, as Bitcoin still hasn't solved scaling, then it doesn't actually change anything, right? Eventually, you still wind up running into that problem. But again, it gets back to that story point, right? The story for the time that it is serving that purpose can be that it can actually co-opt Bitcoin's story about that simply because it hasn't hit those problems yet. And just as this applies to Ethereum, it applies even more so to everything else. Because Ethereum, again, second most valuable uh, after Bitcoin by a substantial margin, uh, and everything else is so much cheaper. So again, it's just like, it's a question of where do you want to focus your, your, your time and your effort on? 
And I think that, you know, we will eventually see this stuff happen because the the work that was done by those Bitcoin entrepreneurs who tried to solve this problem and everybody else who's tried to solve this problem, that still has kind of already been done. And a lot of the groundwork has been laid. Didn't work, but but it, it was done, you know. And so it, I think it is just an issue of pushing on this until we finally get to the place that we need to be. I'm still coming to grips with whether or not this path that Bitcoin is taking with off-chain settlement, if that's the path forward for cryptocurrency in general, or if that's the path forward for the big cryptocurrency, and then everything else can still kind of play in this relatively smaller sandbox. Well, I would also say that when it comes to Ethereum's recent price increase, or just the the percentage of the market that Ethereum has relative to other altcoins, what Ethereum as a project was able to do is effectively have its sidechain solution built in from the get-go, which is to say, if you wanted to make your own coins and have fun in Bitcoin, really the only real way to do it is to use Counterparty, which right now isn't the most uh, straightforward experience. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, whereas in Bitcoin, you have all of these projects that are launching what would traditionally two years ago have been their own altcoins. But being able to do it within the ecosystem of Ethereum. So when you're looking at Ethereum, it's not just representing the actual underlying value proposition or value of Ethereum itself, but it has 20 or 30 different what traditionally would have been altcoins inside internal to its own ecosystem. So it's, 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 its market cap is reflective of an actual ecosystem of altcoins. Whereas with Bitcoin, you have a couple of tokens that are able to be built on top of it, but to the extent that they want to do anything really interesting, they fundamentally need their own token outside of the system, like Factum, or uh, you know other services that use Bitcoin as some sort of secondary layer. Because the thing that Bitcoin, I think, is failing at that Ethereum was able to achieve is this notion of malleability of the token, to, uh, the malleability of the underlying token of the network to represent what you want it to be. You can make your Ether your altcoin. But you, it's 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 very difficult to make Bitcoin an altcoin. Bitcoin maximalists will say that ecosystems like Ethereum have appreciated in the way that they have because they exist fun, uh, in a natural monopoly, and that once Bitcoin's able to port back some of the value propositions that Ethereum has as a protocol, that that natural monopoly multiple that's applied to Ethereum will will start to diminish, and you might see a, a sort of return to bitcoin supremacy wait how is how can you explain that argument a little bit more clearly like how is ethereum a natural monopoly ethereum likes to use this phrase called smart contracting but it's basically a a virtual machine people call it's the ethereum virtual machine the evm Um, and if you want to execute code in a basically a decentralized virtual machine that's the only place you can do it right now Mm -hmm. yes so ethereum itself in the same way that Bitcoin has scaling problems, Bitcoin's just transactions, Ethereum's doing computation. That'll have inordinately harder scaling issues once utilization kicks in. But even if you just as a proof of concept do decentralized virtual machine computation, Ethereum's basically the only game in town. And if you look at what Ethereum does and compare it sort of conceptually to Bitcoin, it took a number of years. I, I, I would say maybe like year six of Bitcoin's existence for the market to understand and deconflate Bitcoin as an implementation and a blockchain as a solution or a protocol that one could implement a solution in. And I think that equally, it's going to take the market, I don't know how long, but it might take another year or so, for the market to deconflate Ethereum as the concept of a virtual machine from the fact that Ethereum is one implementation 
of a virtual machine that runs on Ethereum. So you look at RSK, and if you look at Hyperledger, RISC is a sidechain for Bitcoin that is taking the Ethereum virtual machine and building it into Bitcoin. So that all of the things that are built in Bitcoin, or even the virtual machine that Bit uh, that Ethereum has itself, would run on Bitcoin. And then the ultimate question comes down: What is the framework that you want the your Ethereum code to resolve in? Would you prefer for it to resolve in Bitcoin, or would you prefer for it for it to resolve in Ethereum? And that just comes down to sort of like: Is my computer better than your computer to run this code? The the other is Hyperledger, which is using Monax which is another framework that uses the Ethereum virtual machine, but doesn't at all use Ethereum as the execution environment for the Ethereum virtual machine, and instead is taking that and porting it to Hyperledger. So mm -hmm. what we're seeing now is Ethereum existing as the sole method to execute an EVM, and there are a number of projects that are coming out that are using their own virtual machines, but even just the Ethereum virtual machine itself, there will be two or three projects that will be different isolated execution frameworks for Ethereum's own code. And then the question will become, is the framework that Ethereum has for the execution of Ethereum's virtual machine a better environment or a, a superior environment in every case than Bitcoin's virtual machine of uh, Ethereum virtual machine or Hyperledger's um, Ethereum virtual machine or, or whatever other virtual machines that might come out. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so it basically Ethereum is appreciating in the multiple that is instilled in any product that has a natural monopoly, sort of like if those of us, but those listening remember um, <laughs> Avalon miners hmm. when yep. they just had a natural monopoly on ASICs and we're just printing more money than God in Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I remember that. And, you know, it, it's the nature of natural monopolies outside of state interference to be armed out. There's typically a time lag in the market uh, determining when there's exorbitant profits and then building out their own product to, uh, to eat into that. Adam, you had asked a question about are second layer solutions the way forward for all cryptocurrencies in general? or just Bitcoin, because you're sort of, you've sort of accepted that that's Bitcoin's fate, is that, are there other ways for other cryptocurrencies? Or is this just how it's going to be? I think, yeah, that's the basic question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question, if it's, if it's necessarily the way forward for all cryptocurrencies to need to do second layer solutions in order to, to scale. I think you said it there. I think it's the scaling thing. I think that it's the, if you need to scale, this is so much easier from so many different angles compared to trying to solve the problems of increasing the of you know of actually offloading the traffic onto the blockchain and again the argument there isn't that bitcoin can't deal with two megabyte blocks i think the argument that's that's most often made is that bitcoin can't deal with blocks that grow ever larger as the network continues to grow and so we need to figure out a way to make it so the network also has non-linear scaling right where as volume goes up you know you have maybe a one percent growth for every hundred percent um, that you have going into it or something like that. That's a bit more reasonable than where we are now, where every transaction, every byte that's going in is fighting for that space. But yeah, I mean, like you just, you don't need to do this if you have a fast blockchain that nobody uses, right? But then you get back <laughs> to a different problem, which is that there's no security. Right. But then that's nobody's using it and there's no security. Yeah. Right. But I mean, like we use uh, Florin coin for various things because it's cheap. You can shove a bunch of metadata in there. And although it's not very secure right now, it doesn't need to be very secure right now. And kind of as its utility grows, so will it 
grow. Factum deals with this in an interesting way since they don't actually have a blockchain and miners, they borrow Bitcoin security. And then for their own blockchain, they basically have a federated node system, which is like instead of having anonymous miners, what you have is trusted, you know, like business partners. So Factum might have 16 business partners that are like major players who make big use of their system and rely on it being up. So long as one of those federated servers, so long as one of those business partners uh, hasn't gone down, then the entire system remains valid, even with just one provider of the data, because they're not providing the uh, security, right? The security still comes from Bitcoin. What they're providing is the the data that's not being stored on Bitcoin. And then you take that data, you look at, at the Bitcoin blockchain, you say, do the fingerprints match? Does this validate against this? And if it does, then it's right. And if not, then you know it's wrong. So that's the alternative approach. And I've been thinking about that a lot too, is like, maybe that's a better path for scaling for many of these smaller projects or many of these niche projects. I think we, you know, like we all went with mining because it was the thing that Bitcoin did, but not everything is doing what Bitcoin does. So it, it seems like there is a bit of a difference. Right. There. And I don't think there'll ever be a blockchain that will compete on Bitcoin in the parameter of immutability or security, but that when it comes to products that just want to build systems that wouldn't work if they were a, a holistic blockchain, they could just take advantage of Bitcoin's immutability, uh, excuse me, immutability and Bitcoin security, and then build systems that, because they're taking advantage of Bitcoin, don't need to architect that as a value it, it, as to incentivize in their framework, like Factum has, or necessarily one would need in content sharing. <laughs> one of the things that this gets to is I talk to enterprises about Bitcoin, and I talk to them about uh, things like Hyperledger, and Bitcoin basically is a solution to something called Byzantine fault tolerance, which is to say that it's really hard to affect uh, changes in the system. And <laughs> in cryptography, there's something called PBFT, which is practical Byzantine fault tolerance, which is a cryptographer will never say something actually works. They'll just say in practice, it's good enough. And that comes down to a philosophical discussion, which is in the use case that an actual use case wants to engage in a platform with, what is practical to them? And Bitcoin as a framework is always going to maximize their Byzantine fault tolerance to be as maximal as possible, regardless of if it's rational, if it makes sense, if it's appropriate to the use case, because the incentive framework for Bitcoin is a feedback loop to at all points maximizing to the detriment of any other parameter, the difficulty rate and the incentives around that difficulty rate. Mm. Because that's literally how it was architected. Bitcoin is architected to maximally at all times have the highest hash rate at any point that it could have given the market demand for that hash rate. And the market demand would be the miners willing to put up collateral to mine with. But then it comes down to Bitcoin is what, 20 times more secure than it was a year ago? And it was 20 times more secure than it was that year before? At what point is that maximization no longer a value to the network as it relates to the people who want to use it as a use case? So one of the examples in this that cracks me up is Hyperledger Intel has a methodology for consensus called proof of elapsed time. And, and basically, instead of Bitcoin miners solve math problems, and then in solving the math problem, they basically get a ticket that says, hey, I solved the math problem. And then statistically, the, the system will choose them and then they get to, you know, they get to get a reward for that. In proof of elapsed time, the system says, okay, well, you're going to have an actual trusted hardware device, like a, a trusted CPU, and it's just going to count time. And then every one minute, 
It's just going to say, hey, a minute has elapsed. And then the mark, the network will just choose randomly one of these uh, CPUs that says, hey, a minute has elapsed. The way that you mine more is just having more of those CPUs. And in terms of how the it looks to the, the, the value framework of the market, it, it facilitates a Bitcoin-like experience in mining. But when it comes to how fault-tolerant it is, instead of Bitcoins always maximizing for the greatest level of fault tolerance one could possibly have, I spoke to a core developer and they said, yeah, but that, that'll never work. And I said, why won't that work? And they go, because fundamentally, you're going to need companies to trust Intel hardware. And, and that's when you know that Bitcoin has philosophers and not many of them very good philosophers. And, and sometimes their philosophies aren't meant to change the world. And when as a maximalist, you're looking at how to design your framework and you're saying, well, we don't care what design decisions we make or what value propositions we lose. We're going to always maximize for this one choice. And if the, even the notion of trusting Intel CPUs is a joke in terms of security for you, well, then you've already lost the vast majority of the market who would actually want to use your product. Is there such a thing as too much security in something whose purpose it is to be the most secured platform out there? I know. I, I think that that's great that Bitcoin is the most secure thing out there. That's fantastic. That's a value proposition that doesn't exist being the most secure thing. But you don't get to be the most secure thing and be the most scalable, the most easy to use. Fastest, yeah. The fast. You, you get to be a settlement framework. And I think that Bitcoin as the greatest secure ultimate repository for the settlement of trusted things um, is a fantastic value proposition for it. Yeah. You know, it strikes me that if you moved away from the idea of other blockchains mining for security and instead you move to the idea of them mining for just transaction processing and you use something like Factum or did your own type of thing but that's the same type of system, you could actually run your own blockchain but be doing all of your security into the Bitcoin blockchain and then using that security from the Bitcoin blockchain through 170 transactions per day or whatever in order to offset any, any, any sort of issue that you have within your system. It's not as granular as it is for Bitcoin, right? Because there it's every block. That's a new set of record here again. Like you could do that. You could put one transaction to every block. That's interesting. So, so, so Bitcoin's real value proposition moving forward in this paradigm, it seems like, is that security. That is the whole thing. And it doesn't matter that it can't scale because you can have solutions that use additional layers built on top that embed into that do all of these different things to borrow that. And that is the valuable part. And then in that case, it doesn't even matter if you're paying, you know, a dollar or a hundred dollars per transaction, because ultimately you've done the scaling at the other layer. And so I think you just summarized nicely, Adam, where I'm at with it. It's like, I, I'm not married to the idea of buying a cup of coffee in Calcutta. You know, I still like Bitcoin without that purpose. And, you know, thinking about it, decentralization provides benefits like security and trustless systems. But perhaps lightning fast transactions and cheap transactions is, is not one of the things that it provides. And that's okay. Yeah, I don't think we have to choose. I think that that's the, the key takeaway for me is that objectively what you're saying is true but in practice what we're going to see what we're already seeing is layers whether they require segregated witness or not that enable exactly that type of transaction it just means that your wallet has to also be able to speak the secondary layer or the additional blockchain or kind of whatever the thing is that's doing it and it still all gets back to bitcoin at the end right but we don't have those layers right now yeah i know they're coming but they've been 
I don't know, things move really fast in the Bitcoin world, except that, <laughs> it seems like. Um. <laughs> right, except consensus. Consensus moves really, really slowly. But if it's something that you can do on your own, it's like Andreas always talks about with just permissionless innovation and kind of the blooming effect that you can get from, from just having that be an option. But when it comes to the stagnation of consensus in Bitcoin, it doesn't really matter how beautiful your code is or how well orchestrated your incentive frameworks are. People are people. So any system you map on top of that is going to have the scaling issues of just getting more people to agree on a particular topic. And if you look at what Bitcoin is and what it's trying to compete with, and then look at the consensus on the thing it's trying to compete with, look at ACH. So Bitcoin's fundamentally a currency settlement network. ACH is a currency settlement network. And then you ask yourself, okay, when was the last time ACH came to a major consensus on a feature update to their framework? And what did it take for their network to get to come to consensus on that? And for those who aren't familiar, uh, and I could be mistaken because it might have changed, but I believe that's still the case. The last major update to ACH was the digital pay by check. So if you remember about a, 10 years ago or so, you could take a picture of a check and then send it to the bank and they would settle it just by taking a photo of the check. You didn't have to no longer have the actual check itself to settle. That was a huge update to ACH. And, they, you know, they had the solution. They knew that it worked. It was there. But they weren't coming to consensus on actually implementing it into the framework until, and this is what it took, September 11th, 2001, when the terrorists drove those two planes into the Twin Towers and George Bush grounded every single plane in North America because ACH was a physical settlement network, <laughs> Greenspan went to uh, Bush and said, hey, by the way, because all the planes are grounded, we're not going to have an economy tomorrow morning <laughs> because <laughs> literally zero checks can settle. The entire American currency system could not settle. And they go, oh, well, how could we fix that? And they go, well, actually, there's this feature update to ACH that we've had for years, but could never get Congress to approve. And they get, oh, all right. And they just emergency provisioned it, got it in, and then it never left. <laughs> And that was what it took to get ACH to put a, a major feature, feature update into itself. Now, ACH, if you're not very familiar, is highly centralized. Now, it has much larger scale than Bitcoin, but conversely, the whole point of it is its centralization. So Bitcoin, regardless of the fact that it's much smaller, is maximalizing to be the most decentralized thing ever. So to think that it can be the most decentralized thing ever but simultaneously come to consensus in an easier fashion than something that is highly centralized, I think is sort of missing the point of the feature. I guess then the question is, uh, are we ready for that? You know, I mean, like, these networks out there, by the time they solidify, they tend to be in working form that solves the problems, and then they only change if they need to change. It seems like we're not yet really in working form. We need to change, and yet it's hard to change. 